Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Of all the prayers that we people of faith pray, surely the most common are prayers on behalf of the health of a loved one. And when our prayers are most sincere, we are motivated not only to pray for that person, but also to figure out ways to do something for them and or with them. Bring them a meal, visit them in the hospital, um, research how to support them through a, a disease or a surgery. And that uh, brings us into our <coughs> second core sample uh, in Mark's gospel today, which is uh, the ministry of Jesus as a healer, uh, which indicates that in our tradition, in our biblical tradition, healing is about praying, but it's also about hearing and doing. I want to focus on a few core samples from Mark chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 5, which focus on Jesus as a healer, something that was absolutely fundamental to his ministry. If you pull, try to pull this strand out, uh, the whole fabric unravels. And as we did yesterday, we are going to see again how this ministry was inevitably public and political as well as intensely personal. <clears throat> so let's jump right into it. This is the first healing story in Mark's narrative. And although it is the briefest of all the gospel healing episodes, it sets the tone for everything that follows. The scene of this event is the humble home of the peasant fisherman, Peter. Uh, and you'll remember yesterday the picture of me sitting uh, on the shore just in front of the traditional site of Peter's house. In fact, it's an archaeological site uh, which seems to have have confirmed that it was indeed uh, the abode of these fishermen with early Christian graffiti scrawled on the subterranean walls. We can therefore deduce from both the material evidence and from Mark's narrative that this home, this house, would have been a space of poverty for the reasons we talked about yesterday. Fishermen having fallen to the bottom of the social pyramid in early first century Romanized Galilee. The fact that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was living with him would underline the hard times, and she is ill. Indeed, in antiquity and still today, people are often sick because they are poor and poor because they are sick. There's a synergy there. Mark tells us that Jesus pays immediate attention to the plight before him. He neither avoids nor laments it. 
but engages it directly. As modern readers, we miss the scandal of what happens next, however. It would have been highly inappropriate for a man to touch a woman, much less touch somebody else's mother-in-law. And yet physical contact always characterizes Jesus' healings as if emphasizing uh, the gesture of solidarity. Mark reports simply that the fever left her and that she arose and began to serve. But don't imagine that Mark means by this that she immediately scurried off to cook the men's supper. The Greek verb diakoneo is a discipleship term in Mark's story. Indeed, it represents the essence of true leadership. As Mark uh, will make clear later on in one of his central teachings of Jesus, this disenfranchised, bedridden peasant woman is raised up. The verb egero means both to awaken and to resurrect. And she becomes actually the first true disciple of Mark's story. Just as at the very end of Mark's narrative, it will be women who abide with Jesus' corpse long after the men have fled. The epilogue to this scene, and Mark's uh, episodes oftentimes have epilogues, is equally suggestive. Mark carefully points out that after the sun sets, a multitude of the disabled and disenfranchised flock to the threshold of the house. This small detail freights all kinds of social meaning. You see, Jesus' healing of this woman took place on the Sabbath, the Sabbath which ends at sunset. And healing on the Sabbath is something which will soon become a major political conflict in Mark's narrative. Look, for example, at Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. The implication here, then, is that Jesus was careful to heal Peter's mother-in-law in the privacy of the home. But after the sun sets and the Sabbath ends, he commences his public ministry of compassion. In other words, Jesus is choosing his battles though before long he'll challenge the public order openly. The scene here suggests an overcrowded clinic hallway. One can imagine the chaos. The verb to gather, the, the whole village gathering at the threshold, that verb is from the Greek verb synago, an, uh, an intensification of a verb used for the noun synagogue which in the first century didn't connote a religious building, but rather a kind of public gathering, a kind of town meeting. So the word is out, and those in physical and psychological pain have come to the fisherman's shack to seek help. This is the reality of life among the marginalized. It's not difficult to envision Peter's mother-in-law herself now fully engaged in this inaugural work of diaconia, of healing, 
and service. And it's worth noting that the word for cure here is the Greek word from which we get our term therapy. This is a list of all the healings in Mark's gospel, healings and exorcism stories. And even though exorcism and uh, healings are slightly different, they're really uh, in many ways narrated in similar fashion by Mark. As you can see, most of these healings are in the first half of the gospel, all but just a couple. Now, it's my observation that every single episode, without exception, uh, represents what we could call an object lesson. That is, it's a healing meant that means to illustrate uh, or challenge a broader social issue. And so I've listed these issues in the right-hand column. Not a single healing means simply to prove Jesus' greatness or omnipotence. Instead, each healing tries to, functions to unmask something deeper or larger. The story we just looked at of Peter's mother-in-law, for example, functions to introduce the plot tension around healing and Sabbath, which culminates in the story of the man with a withered hand at the beginning of Mark 3, which is all about the Deuteronomic demand for justice for the poor. To explore this further, I want to look carefully at um, two sequences of healing. Um, first, these two highlighted healing stories here, the healing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic, which follow in the narrative sequence after the episode we've just looked at. Both of these healings engender hostility from the local authorities. Now, this hostility can't be attributed to a general intolerance of healers or magicians in antiquity because such persons were, in fact, common and practiced freely in Hellenistic society. So to understand the controversial nature of Jesus' healings, let's dig a little deeper. The, the work of diaconia to the diseased and disenfranchised of society was, we know, one of the central characteristics of the primitive Christian church, and indeed through the first centuries of the Christian church. Our terms Hospitality and hospital, both derived from the Latin hospes, signifying a stranger or foreigner, hence a guest. Uh, as Roman society became increasingly decadent in the ensuing centuries after the gospel was written, increasingly socially stratified, increasingly hard hearted, it was the churches that became the main place where strangers were taken in, where poor folks were housed, where the sick were cared for. And here are the covers of two titles you might want to look into further if you wish to pursue this theme. So when we read, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, that bishops must be devoted to hospitality, we should understand that the houses of these early leaders were not the gilded 
ecclesial mansions of later Christendom, but rather they were places dedicated to the radically inclusive works of mercy. A bishop's house in the first century or second century would have looked far more like a contemporary Catholic worker house of hospitality than a well-appointed bishop's manse today. The fourth century council of Nicaea <coughs> mandated the construction of such hospitalities in every cathedral town. These were sometimes called xenodokia, places where the stranger and the sick would be welcome. Some of the larger xenodokia included housing for doctors and nurses and separate buildings for various kinds of patients, including lepers. Some places maintained libraries and training programs where doctors compiled their medical and pharmacological studies. So we need to understand that this strand in Jesus' ministry became a major strand in early Christianity, and indeed one that has survived all the way into modern Christianity, where churches have continued to have a special relationship, both with building hospitals, running hospitals, and doing hospital ministry. But the gospel tradition offers us some radical guidance. That is to say, these stories redirect us to the roots as we try to think through the true nature of healing work. I believe one of the reasons that our churches are so often confused today and even sidelined in contemporary debates around health care justice and capacity is that we've fallen into the habit of either trivializing or dismissing this rich tradition of Jesus as a healer. On one hand, theological conservatives see Jesus' healings as indivisibly miraculous, whose meaning is primarily to prove his supernatural power and thus his divinity. This also, however, functions unwittingly to make conservatives somewhat ambivalent about whether or not Jesus' followers should also exhibit such healing power. So, for example, the New Testament stories in which the apostles also heal, such as we find in, for example, Acts 3, tend to be shrugged off as relics from the close of the Age of Miracles. Meantime, on the other hand, theological liberals tend to feel diffident toward biblical healings because liberals are modernists, skeptical of anything perceived as supernatural. In either case, I believe that we miss the point. Because we, keep to, we need to keep in mind that reading biblical narrative is a cross-cultural exercise. We're looking at the ancient Mediterranean world, and like many other traditional non-modern cultures, um, healing was not biomedical in its approach to illness, but largely symbolic. Now, obviously, there was certainly folk medicine, what is unfortunately um, termed uh, in, in a rather derogatory fashion, folk medicine. That certainly was practiced in all traditional cultures to address physiological symptoms, um, 
through herbal remedies or massage or other traditions. And yet serious or chronic illness tended to be perceived primarily as a socially disvalued state, an aberrant or defective condition that often was perceived as threatening communal integrity. In the case of these serious illnesses, the job of the healer was to do whatever rituals were needed to restore the subject back to the community, if not back to medical health. You see, human societies order our existence by maps, which seek to regulate and socialize bodies within the body politic. What is pure is that which is in its place. What is impure is that which is perceived out of place. That which, uh, so, so we're defining things that are safe or things that are threatening or people. Thus, for example, according to ancient Hebrew patriarchy, menstruating women were considered unclean and dangerous and had to be quarantined from men. While this may seem strange to our more enlightened modern mindset, it's no stranger than the modern purity code of racism, in which dark-skinned persons were, and in some circles still are, considered inferior yet dangerous, such that for decades in the United States they had to be segregated. Every culture, ancient or modern, has some sort of operative health care system. And ultimately, these systems are about access and mobility, power and privilege. And every system privileges some and discriminates against others. For example, we're about to look at the story of Jesus healing of a leper. Now, the segregation, the social segregation of lepers is a practice uh, widespread and one that persisted into the 19th century. Indeed, attitudes really only began to change toward leprosy because of the famous story of Father Damien of Molokai. In early 1866, leprosy victims in the island nation of Hawaii were being shipped to Kalapapa, Molokai, a remote village inaccessible by land or sea. So leprosy victims were taken by boat offshore and told to jump overboard and swim for their lives to shore. The ship's crew would then throw into the water whatever supplies that had been sent, the exiles having to swim to retrieve them. These lepers dwelled in rock enclosures and caves and rudimentary shacks built of sticks and dried leaves. Becoming aware of this awful situation in 1873, Father Damien de Wooster, a 33-year-old Belgian missionary Catholic priest, arrived at Kalapapa. Father Damien set about organizing people to build homes, churches, and coffins arranged for medical services and funding from the major city of Honolulu and became apparent 
to his diseased wards. Damien, of course, eventually, in the course of his ministry, after 16 years of selfless service, himself contracted leprosy and died in 1899. Now, again, if we think that we contemporary folk are beyond all of that kind of cruel segregation, all we have to do is look at the HIV and AIDS pandemic and how it is still perceived through the lens of purity, not to mention how the politics and economics of both prevention and cure have been deeply impacted by both heterosexist biases and racial ones, particularly when it comes to the pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa. So when we're reading the Bible, we're looking at a a culture that is defined in its healthcare system by a purity code. And in the first century Palestinian Judaism, um, purity was the central concern of the healthcare system. It focused on somatic anomalies of birth, body, and behavior. It determined what was clean and unclean and maintained social boundaries within the community, as well as defining the community itself. Think of the somatic practice of circumcision, a a bodily surgery meant to determine boundaries of the community. The Purity Code also defined ethnic, gender, and religious differences. This system was adjudicated through ritual and the temple system, and it was defined by and controlled by a priestly establishment who who, uh, exhibited and exercised three kinds of power. The power to diagnose, that is to interpret a disease. The power to treat, that is the power to change the status of an anomalous body within the body politic, and the power to dispose, particularly uh, around economics, that is, to determine what treatment would cost. In in other words, this was a healthcare system. And let us not assume that it was um, primitive or uh, ineffective. It was a system that, for the most part, was operative and acceptable to those within it, but not to everybody. So with this background, let's look at Mark 1, 40 to 45. This is the first detailed account of a healing in Mark's narrative. The leper represented the archetypal social outcast due to impurity. There are extensive Levitical regulations regarding leprosy. You can read about these in Leviticus 13 and 14, which um, is a detailed uh, accounting of the protocols about how leprosy shall be handled in the community. But all of these two chapters of regulations revolve around two fundamental stipulations. First, the impurity was understood to be communicable, right? 
it is contagious, and that's the power of diagnosis. Secondly, a priest must preside over ritual cleansing. That's the power of treatment or adjudication. Both of these principles are challenged here in the story of Jesus' healing. The episode is constructed around Mark's repeated use of the Greek verb katharizo, usually translated to make clean, but actually referring to the official priestly declaration, so actually better translated to declare clean. The drama begins when the leper dares Jesus to assume the priestly prerogative. You have the power, he says, to make me or declare me clean. This challenge may explain why Mark tells us that Jesus' guts were churning. One of the great onomatopoetic verbs in Greek, splagnitsis in uh, verse 41. Rather than performing a priestly ritual, however, Jesus simply reaches out and touches the leper and declares him clean. Now, according to the public purity code, Jesus should have contracted the impurity. Right? Remember, it's a contagion. Instead, however, Mark reports that the declaration was effective and the leprosy was banished. The purity code has been subverted by Jesus' willingness to have both social and physical contact with this leper. But once again, the epilogue to the story is key. As Jesus snorts with indignation and dispatches the man to the priests. The mood implied here is one of protest of the healthcare system, not cooperation with it. The man's task is to help confront the very system that keeps him marginalized. He is instructed to go conform to the Mosaic ritual in order, says Mark, to witness against them. A technical phrase in Mark for confronting one's opponents. It's used again in Mark 6.11 and again in Mark 13.9. I suppose this would be a bit like going to a hospital and paying for treatment you didn't receive, a rather creative way of protesting the system. Obviously, the priests would have hardly accepted Jesus' authority to declare this leper clean. Unfortunately, however, this protest mission is aborted. Instead of confronting the system, the leper goes public with his good fortune, such that Jesus is now forced to go underground, to lie low. After all, he would now be perceived by the authorities not only as himself unclean, but worse, practicing without a license. This episode sets the tone for all of Jesus' healing ministry in Mark. 
these healings always involve more than the liberation of an individual victim, although they always center around that liberation. Jesus is also challenging the cause of disease in the traditional sense, the social etiology of dis-ease. So this story articulates what I call a triangle of power relationships. If you look at this uh, map, you'll see that <clears throat> the orange arrow of relationship is the relationship of power between Jesus and the leper in a relationship of intervention. In Mark, healing is always personal. The red arrow is the relationship between the leper and the priestly establishment, which traditionally was a client-patron kind of relationship in which those with power adjudicated those on the margins. And the yellow arrow represents the relationship of challenge between Jesus and that priestly establishment, the overseers of the healthcare system. In Mark, it's also always political. Jesus refuses to patronize the leper, instead inviting him to participate in his own liberation. This approach is later made explicit in Jesus' well-known commendation to poor subjects who take initiative. Your faith has made you well. Uh, a phrase which appears, for example, in Mark 5.34 and 10.52. Jesus is clearly operating as a healer in the prophetic tradition, which both advocates on behalf of the poor and strategically confronts those in power with the demands of justice. So this sets the tone for Jesus' ministry. His healing work will be interpreted either as liberation or as lawless defiance, depending on one's commitment to the prevailing social order. Here I'd like to make uh, <clears throat> another analogy. Um, and this analogy is of a marginalized body being empowered to bear witness against a system that oppressed her. This is a picture of Rosa Parks' famous refusal to move to the back of the bus in uh, Montgomery, Alabama in 1955. She was arrested for disobeying a segregation law that required her to give up her seat on a bus to a white person because she presented somatically as African-American. Her bold action, which was not simply spontaneous, but the result of very careful training and planning. This action, as you know, helped to stimulate protests against transportation apartheid. The blacks of the community of Montgomery organized a boycott of the bus system that was led by the unknown minister at the time, Martin Luther King Jr., these protests forced city officials to eventually, after almost a year, repeal the discriminatory, discriminatory law. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, was Rosa Parks a troublemaker 
or a freedom rider? Well, it all depends on where one stands in relationship to the dominant system. Was she a healer or a renegade? Obviously, in the hindsight of history, we can say she was a courageous healer. But you can bet that that's not how she was perceived by most white and even some black folk in the South some 60 plus years ago. Let's now move to a second healing story, <clears throat> one that follows immediately in Mark, and one that engages what some biblical sociologists call the complement to the purity code known as the debt code. Debt and sin were virtually interchangeable terms in, uh, in the New Testament. The debt code, under the jurisdiction now of the scribal class, the lawyerly class, functioned to regulate individual and social responsibilities, criminal behavior, and economic status. Its rules, both the Ten Commandments, uh, the 653 laws, and all of the various nuancing of these laws of Torah, these determined the sins of commission, such as stealing an ox or adultery, and sins of omission, not paying tithes or not observing the Sabbath. It's important to remember that in this culture, there was no differentiation between the sacred and the secular in this system. That is a very modern invention. Torah, which is to us is a religious text, functioned as a fundamental legal code. By paying attention to this debt code, we can see how and why Jesus' actions provoked political opposition. When Jesus engages in debate concerning scripture, he is involved in social criticism. When he clashes with priests or scribes, he is taking on senior administrators who are spokespersons for the status quo. And when he challenges the temple cult, he is subverting political authority. That's why in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, this healing immediately turns into a controversy story. Now, I want you to note the rhetorical contrasts that emerge in the course of this healing story. Uh, in verse 2, Jesus is teaching them the word. In verse 6, the scribes are reasoning in their hearts. That is, they're silently being critical of Jesus. In verse 7, the scribes say to themselves, why does this man teach in this way? And in verse 8, Jesus responds verbally, why are you reasoning this way in your hearts? So you can see the, the contrasting ways of thinking um, between Jesus and his scribal opponents. The deeper issue this time concerns the debt code under which those who were physically disabled held inferior status in the community because of their somatic flaws or disabilities. 
Now you remember the story. The man is <clears throat> gains access to Jesus by um, being lowered down through a hole in the roof. Uh, <clears throat> we could see this in as a device in traditional storytelling, where literally the world is being opened up to a new possibility. Rather than simply curing this body, however, you'll note in the story that Jesus chooses to challenge the body politic by declaring that the man is released from debt. That's the meaning of to forgive someone their sins. The scribes immediately object, claiming that only God can adjudicate sin or debt. But of course, this is not a defense of God's sovereignty. It's a defense of their own social power. Because as interpreters of Torah, they are the ones who control how sin and debt are defined and adjudicated. So as in the previous episode, Jesus unilaterally bypasses public authority for the sake of liberating a body liberating human life. Notice how the scene ends with actual healing, with concrete change. The man stands up and <clears throat> then we're told that everybody saw this and glorified God. This little world in miniature, this peasant household that has been opened up to a new possibility. At the end of this episode is transformed into a temple of worship and everyone glorified God. <clears throat> God is glorified when bodies are healed. But to do that, we must also challenge systems of enclosure, systems that keep people segregated or in second-class citizenship. So we could summarize this uh, brief core sample of Jesus' healings, already defining his early ministry, in this way. <clears throat> Jesus cares about both bodies and the body politic. Jesus' healing deals with both individuals and systems. It is both personal and public. And physical health matters. Restoration is an essential part of the program of the kingdom of God. But the gospel also makes it clear that underneath physical ailments or anomalies are deeper spiritual and social impairments. And Jesus attempts to address both. Now, we're about halfway through our time, and I want to, <clears throat> again, present this list of healing and exorcism stories in Mark's gospel. And I want to focus the second half of our discussion this morning on uh, the sequence highlighted in red here, which um, consists of the whole of Mark chapter 5. So this is um, another core sample from Mark's narrative. We pick up the thread of Mark's story at the end of chapter 4. 
where the disciples make that first dangerous crossing of the Sea of Galilee. What is significant about this storm story is the way in which Mark is clearly drawing on the tale of Jonah, the prophet who resisted the call to preach repentance to empire. Remember, God called Noah, uh, called Jonah to preach repentance to Nineveh, and instead uh, Jonah took a boat in the off- opposite direction. The, the storm comes up. Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat, uh, comes up to the top, uh, is implicated in the storm, right, and thrown overboard. Jonah was fleeing from his mission to confront empire. And so, like the disciples in this story, is caught up in a great storm. In Mark, the disciples have gotten into a boat to cross to the other side of the sea, a side which we'll see in a minute was identified with empire. In this tumultuous journey, the disciples, who, by the way, included fishermen who would have been very experienced, with how to navigate a boat on the stormy uh, waters of Lake Galilee, here the disciples are forced to confront their own deepest fears. So this is essentially a story about the barriers that prevent us from confronting our deepest fears, both personal and political. You see, on the other side of the sea lay the country of the Gerasenes, Mark 5, verse 1, also known as the Decapolis, the ten federated cities. Now, the Decapolis was the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire, and it was a region that had been settled by many veterans of the Roman army, who were typically paid by being given conquered lands for their military service. It's no accident, then, that the ensuing narrative here is laced with military imagery. This is a story, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, one of the weirdest stories in the gospel tradition from a modern point of view. This is a story that, when understood in its cultural context, is, in my opinion, best understood as a kind of a political cartoon about confronting imperial militarism and the occupation of Jewish Palestine. Stay with me here. This may seem like a stretch. As soon as Jesus arrives in this foreign territory, as soon as he steps out of the boat, he is confronted by a man with an unclean spirit who challenges his mission. So you notice the purity code immediately coming into play. To Jewish readers, the setting suggests profound impurity. After all, we're told that he lived among the tombs, and cemeteries were considered off-limits because of the purity code, and so were pigs, who will soon appear in this episode. We encounter a tortured soul who literally is living among the dead. Now Mark's scenario here is likely an allusion to 
third Isaiah's characterization of an idolatrous people. We see this in Isaiah 65, which mentions the double impurity of both cemeteries and pigs, as you can see here. These are people who sit among the graves, who eat the flesh of pigs and hold broth of unclean meat, and who say, keep away, don't come near me. It's obvious that this text is in Mark's mind here, but Mark clearly characterizes this man, unlike Isaiah 65, as a victim. It will shortly become clear that his possession mirrors the condition of the military occupation of the land. <coughs> Mark's ensuing description of the demoniac depicts the condition of captivity to what we might call addiction or internalized oppression. He cries out and engages in self-destructive behavior. The, the demoniac can no longer be bound, verse 3, because no one had the strength to subdue him, verse 4. <clears throat> Mark's description of the Gerasene demoniac's pain is detailed and poignant. We should be mindful that this sort of agony has long captured the imagination of artists and poets, as well as psychologists and political reformers. This kind of pain is archetypal to the condition of human oppression. The description of the demoniac as too strong, moreover, reminds us that Jesus has been introduced earlier in Mark's narrative, back in that prologue we dipped into yesterday. Jesus is introduced as the stronger one, Mark 1.7. Moreover, in Jesus' inaugural parable in chapter 3, Jesus' mission is likened to a thief who breaks and enters the proverbial house in order to bind a strong man and ransack his goods, Mark 3.27. Seems to me a great title for a book. In that master parable, Jesus made his subversive intentions clear. He is on a divine mission to liberate those under the power of systems of domination, both native and foreign. This parable now, in the Gerasene demoniac, is about to be reenacted. This exorcism in the Decapolis is clearly a struggle over both personal and political power. Who, who controls the house? Now, this exorcism falls into a larger pattern of parallelism in the first half of Mark's narrative. Uh, in this chart, <clears throat> which you'll just have to glance at quickly, you see the close patterning of the story of the Gerasene demoniac on the right-hand column with Jesus' very first exorcism back in Mark chapter 1. Each of these confrontations inaugurates Jesus' struggle with, respectively, the Judean authorities inhabiting the synagogue in Mark 1, 21-28, and Roman imperialism 
here in the story of the Gerasene demoniac. And I think by glancing at this, you can clearly see that the architecture of these two healing stories are very analogous. As with Jesus' inaugural synagogue exorcism, here we are told in Mark 5 that the unclean spirit protests his presence, a challenge that is at once both indignant and fearful. What are you doing here? Literally, what do you have to do with us? Um, <clears throat> which, by the way, is um, alluding to the story of uh, foreign emissaries confronting Joshua's army. Of all the many exorcism stories in the gospel, only here in Mark does Jesus turn the tables on the demon, right? The demon's M.O. is to try to name Jesus. But here, Jesus is the one who demands that the demon identify himself. And the answer Jesus receives is stunning. My name, he replies, is Legion, for we are many. Note the singular plural subject confusion. My name, we are. Now in Mark's world, this Latin term, legion, had only one meaning. And that, of course, was a division of Roman soldiers. No less than four such legions were based throughout Syria and Palestine to control the eastern frontier, including in Jewish Palestine. We are indeed many. We need to understand that for a Jewish peasant hearer of this story in Roman Palestine, a legion was the face of the distant Roman Empire. And it projected a presence of absolute domination, overwhelming, overwhelming in military might, and omnipresent in the landscape of the occupation. <clears throat> Indeed, the footprint of Roman militarism was extremely heavy on the land. What you're looking at here is the outlines of the encampment of the 10th Legion's siege of the Judean rebel fortress at Masada, still visible on the landscape 2,000 years later. That's a heavy footprint. Masada, of course, was the last holdout of Judean resistance, where rebels resisted the Roman reconquest of Jerusalem for three years after the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem reduced to rubble in the year 70 of the Common Era. Responsible for the siege at Masada was the famous and feared 10th Legion, which saw lots of action in Judea, crushing the revolt of the year 6 of the Common Era. Remember our conversation about Sepphoris yesterday, as well as being primary in the counterinsurgency of the years 68 to 70 of the Common Era of the Judean Revolt. 
the period during which Mark probably wrote this gospel. The Tenth Legion afterwards was permanently based in Jerusalem. And what was their mascot? What was their symbol? It was a pig. It was a running boar. And poignantly, pigs are about to make an appearance in Mark's healing story. You begin to see what I mean now by the term political cartoon. Mark's story <clears throat> reduces this intimidating military force of the 10th Legion, a, a force so powerful indeed that no one could subdue it, Mark 5.4. This great power is reduced in this tale to a parody. According to Mark's story, the Legion begs Jesus earnestly not to kick them out of the country. This unlikely scenario offers a symbolic repudiation of Rome's military occupation of the land and its people, an occupation which was destroying their hearts and minds. That this episode is a kind of political cartoon critical of Roman imperialism is confirmed by the recurring military terminology that now populates Mark's narrative. <clears throat> the Legion seeks permission to be dispatched into a band of pigs, a Greek term referring to a group of military recruits. Sarcasm is evident here, given the primacy of the swine cult that was so central to the 10th Legion. Jesus, in turn, dismisses them, gives them leave, another military term. And the word describing the pigs rushed down the hill connotes troops charging into battle. Verse 13. And the political parody finds its punchline when the legion meets the same fate as old Pharaoh's army. They're swallowed into the sea. Pharaoh's army got drowned. <clears throat> Exodus 14. If Jesus' first exorcism back in Capernaum served notice that he would challenge the Judean elite's control over the people in the synagogue, this episode extends the struggle for God's sovereignty toward the Roman Empire itself. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Now, here's kind of an interesting little side note historically. This is an account by the Jewish historian Josephus, a contemporary of Mark's, which becomes all the more poignant in light of Mark's political cartoon. Josephus relates a battle that took place between the forces of Vespasian, pictured on this coin. Vespasian was the general who led the counterinsurgency, later became emperor. Uh, the battle between the forces of Vespasian and Jewish rebels in a country called Capernaum. The rebels, led by a man named Jesus, son of Shaphat, had been skirmishing with Roman troops in the area. Again, this is now in the late 60s of the Common Era. 
but eventually, the Jewish rebels withdrew to small boats in the lake of Gennesaret. The Romans gave chase, and the rebels were soundly defeated in the only sea battle of the revolt, vastly outnumbered and outgunned. Josephus describes in uh, rather gruesome detail the slaughter uh, it, with blood and bodies everywhere. <clears throat> but think about it. If Josephus and Mark's stories come from roughly the same period, emerge from the same social and political crisis, they could not differ more radically. Josephus the realist, keep in mind that Josephus was a general in the Judean revolt who surrendered and later went over to the Roman side and became an apologist for Rome. Josephus the realist describes the utter um, pogrom of the legion versus the Jewish rebels. Mark's parody on the other hand, told in the teeth of this kind of bitter defeat of his people, is promising that one day these oppressive relations of power would be obliterated, just like in the old story of Exodus. And Jesus, as the new Moses, would embody this new kind of leadership. But Mark's tale is profoundly personal as well as political, and I don't want us to lose sight of that. Biblical scholar Paul Hollenbach studied exorcism and the social psychology of mental illness in situations of political repression. Uh, this is a very important article that came out <clears throat> in a biblical scholarly journal in the 1980s. His work drew particularly on the work of Franz Fanon, who worked as a medical doctor during the Algerian rebellion against French colonialism in the late 1950s. Hollenbach points out that in traditional societies, demon possession is often a reflection of, quote, class antagonisms that are rooted in economic exploitation. Demon possession, then, is a socially acceptable form of oblique protest against or escape from oppression. In this sense, we might say that the political body of the Gerasene demoniac mirrored the body politic of Roman-occupied Palestine. The destructive demons <clears throat> were possessing both body and body politics. Once again, we come to the epilogue of this story. And once again, it's instructive, turning our attention from the occupier to the occupied. You see, the reaction to Jesus' liberative act is strangely hostile. The people's fear is spawned equally by what happened to the demoniac and what happened to the pigs? After all, the swine herds, uh, the, the swine herders <clears throat> um, lost their uh, business. This fear is better understood once we know that during this historical period, 
Judean struggles for self-determination had spawned many Roman counterinsurgency campaigns that had reduced more than one city in the Decapolis region to rubble. So it's easy to see why there would be fear of any movement of liberation. That may be why the citizens of this region are by no means pleased to see that one of their own is now fully clothed and in his right mind. They're not happy about it. Because, of course, to be in one's right mind is to be freed from imperial impression. But that puts everyone and everything at risk. In political term, terms, this portrait attests to the power of the state to suppress opposition through fear something that still takes place even in our own countries. In psychological terms, it reminds us that those who are codependent with addictive compulsive behavior will usually resist changes in a dysfunctional system. You see, whether personal or political, liberation has a cost, and there will always be those unwilling to, ris to risk that cost for the sake of healing. Given this reaction, this popular counter-reaction, it's understandable that the former demoniac in turn now begs, same verb, Jesus, to go with him. Right? So uh, a couple of moments ago, the Legion was begging Jesus to be dispatched into the swine. Now the demoniac is begging Jesus to be allowed to become part of the discipleship community. But interestingly here, and rather uncharacteristically, Jesus refuses. Instead, dispatching him to, quote, return to his own and spread the good news of God's mercy. After all, who can better attest to the possibility of liberation from oppression than someone who knows it from the inside out? The man whose body was destroyed by the internalized pathologies of empire is now given a mission to proclaim good news to all those held captive in the imperial body politic. <clears throat> the circle of story is complete. A narrative sequence that began with a boat crossing, evoking the memory of Jonah, the prophet who was reluctant to confront empire, ends with a newly minted apostle who will witness to the hope that another world is possible, that empire is not forever, and that God's mercy can trump even the most violent pathologies personal and political. In my poetic moments, I imagine that the Gerasene demoniac became later in his life the political prisoner John of Patmos, the great revelator who courageously unmasked Babylon with visions of a new Jerusalem. Or maybe not so poetically maybe became my friend Stan Goff. Stan Goff was a Green Beret 
He was a special operations soldier of the U.S. military who helped lead invasions, covert invasions, in Grenada and in Nicaragua. But it was when he was dispatched to Haiti in the early 1990s to overthrow the uh, progressive regime of Jean-Baptiste Aristide that Stan Goff had to confront his own duplicity. And he confronted it by working with poor Haitian organizers who showed him the reality of colonialism and imperial control. It was through having his eyes open in this way that Stan Goff became a military resistor. He began uh, leaving his post as a special operative and instead going into the favelas of Haiti and working with the poor there until he was finally uh, dismissed from his post and given a dishonorable discharge, kicked out of the country by the Roman, excuse me, by the United States military. Stan Goff in the ensuing two decades has become one of the most um, clear and incisive critics of U.S. imperialism, particularly of the covert kind. He has devoted his life to trying to speak the truth, which is why he was uh, one of the subjects of Robert Shetterly's great series of Americans who tell the truth. Stan Goff has become a friend, and I'm very deeply gratified to say that it was Stan Goff's reading of Binding the Strongman and reading of the Gospel of Mark that not only um, confirmed his conversion away from being an instrument of U.S. militarism, but also brought him to the Christian faith. And we had a hand in his baptism um, so that now he is a disciple resistor of militarism. Maybe Stan Goff is the healed garrison demoniac, clothed now and fully in his right mind. No more costume of empire. Well, I leave that with you as a, a kind of a fable. And what I want you to do now in our remaining 15 minutes is I want to take our last healing core sample. As if uh, we haven't already covered enough ground. I know there's a lot here, but Mark just keeps the hits coming. So no sooner does <clears throat> Jesus, do Jesus and the disciples take a boat ride back across the sea and arrive back on Jewish turf, then immediately <clears throat> They are encountered the leader of a synagogue. You can just see the social archetypes proliferating in Mark's story. And I want to give you a, a minute, and I'm assuming here that you have a text of some kind on your in your Bible, open Bible, or on your smart-ass phone, however you're seeing these uh, texts. 
And I want you just to scan through this story. It's one I think you're probably familiar with. Um, unfortunately, in the Revised Common Lectionary, you don't get to preach on the Gerasene demoniac. That story is still just a little too hot to handle for our first world churches. But you do get to handle the story of the healing of two women in the second half of Mark 5, beginning in verse 21. And I want you just to scan down that story. Just read it real quick in your mind. You'll be familiar with this as a famous Markan sandwich construction. That is where Mark literally inserts one story right in the middle of another one. So it starts out with Jesus and the ruler of the synagogue, and then there's that inconvenient interruption of the woman with the flow in blood, and then the original story resumes, and they go back to the synagogue leader's house, and Jesus raises the young girl from the dead, or from sleep, depending on how you look at it. Um, <clears throat> if the story of the Gerasene demoniac is a kind of deeply compelling political cartoon. Is it possible that this story also has the components of a political cartoon? Well, I suppose there's no better way to test that hypothesis out than by looking at a political cartoon. That is one from our culture, one that will be a little bit more immediately intelligible. Uh, Bill recognizes this because I use it often um, to try to help people get a hand on how social symbolism um, is used in an archetypal way. So this is obviously a political cartoon from our uh, cultural framework. Political cartoons are known by their use of caricature and by recognizably political scenarios. So this is uh, even though you're Canadians, you can recognize that this is an American political cartoon because you see uh, what house do you think that is in the in the backdrop there? Yeah, that's the White House. See, you Canadians living under the shadow of American empire, you you are forced to be politically literate in our political symbols. So you see the White House uh, looming in the back, obviously putting this little narrative into a political context and sitting out on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House are two, um, what would you generically describe these gentlemen as? Okay, yeah, they're, 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 they're beggars. They're not buskers. <clears throat> um, they're just uh, panhandlers. Uh, and we know this because these folks inhabit the streets of our cities. And we kind of have a stereotypical idea uh, of a panhandler, <clears throat> and the person on the left uh, fits that stereotype. He's rather disheveled. He's got the knit cap. He's um, looking rather defeated and downcast, slumped over. He's got his cup out there, which doesn't appear to have anything in it. But sitting next to him is someone who does not kind of fit the part, right? Why not? Looks like he's wearing a suit with cufflinks, okay? How else does this uh, gentleman contrast? Ah, so even before we get 
get to the actual words here, <clears throat> we see the contrast that one cup overflows, the countenance is different, right? The, the homeless guy is depressed. The, um, well, I guess we have to call him the suit is smiling. And now this all is explained by the signs that they're holding, right? Um, panhandlers oftentimes hold signs. And notice the um, brilliant alliteration, starving and alone on one hand, savings and loan on the other. What is savings and loan um, known as a, um, a metaphor for in the American system? Anybody know? Yeah, it's, it's a kind of a bank that prevailed in the second half of the 20th century. It was supposed to be a kind of a community bank, and those banks failed because of mortgage debt <clears throat> uh, in the early 90s. Turns out this political cartoon comes from 1994 at the height of the federal bailout of the banks who were thrown into crisis because of a mortgage lending scandal. And so the banks are bailed out and more people became homeless. Uh, it's a rather bitter irony that this did not come from 2008, but rather from 1994. It was the first of the great, well, actually not the first, but um, one of the more recent federal bailouts of banks. So the banker now identified is saying, what a great country. Um, the homeless guy, not quite so loyal. Here is the brilliance of a political cartoonist, so literate in culture, <clears throat> to be able in a few strokes of a pen to give us social contrasts. But what about Marx's political cartoon? In the status, uh, in the structure of Marx, here you see the um, sandwich structure, the story of a high status man interrupted by the story of a low-status woman, uh, and then returning to the story of the high-status man. You see that structure, but then you also see the way in which these stories are knit together by a certain repetition of language. The number 12, the um, name of daughter. Uh, and you see if you... Uh, if you study these um, these characters, you, you see that the, the contrasts are um, profound. Uh, one, one person is the head of a synagogue. He's the head of a household. He's got a family. Um, he approaches Jesus directly. Uh, he um, has words to speak. Uh, He's a man on a mission. However, when it comes to the bleeding woman, you have a woman who's poor and sick. You see that twinning again, <clears throat> who's archetypally impure, bleeding uh, ceaselessly. She's a woman without a name, without a hat family, without a home. She approaches Jesus from the back, just trying to um, anonymously grab his garment. She is ignored by the disciples. Um, <clears throat> everything about the characterization of these two individuals means to contrast them every bit as much as in the political cartoon we just looked at. And yet, in the course of this story, both women are named daughters, and both 
are healed. But in the course of this story, it is important that the healing of the daughter of the synagogue ruler is contingent upon the inclusion of the woman with the flow of blood. So in the first part, uh, everything seems to go fine. Jesus is approached by the synagogue ruler. Uh, everyone goes off. But then there's this terrible interruption by this woman who then is invited by Jesus to tell her whole story. And who knows how long that took, right? Uh, this woman who'd been utterly disenfranchised. And in the end, she is the one who is welcomed back into the family, being named daughter in verse 34, and healed. And then we go back to the synagogue leader's house, <clears throat> and it turns out that the interruption was fatal. Jesus is informed that the daughter has died because, by implication of this delay, Jesus, however, presses on. Uh, he takes his inner circle. They go into the house of the leader of the synagogue. The weeping and wailing turns to derision when Jesus suggests that the child is not dead but sleeping. So he puts them all outside. That's exorcism language in the same way that he casts bankers out of the temple. So he takes the skeptics, throws them out of the house. And here is the final scene in which Jesus takes this little girl by the hand and literally resurrects her. Notice that here twice Jesus is touching unclean bodies, the <clears throat> body of the uh, woman with the flow of blood and now the body of a corpse. And we're told <clears throat> um, parenthetically that this girl happened to be 12 years old. Suddenly, the political cartoon snaps into focus, because what is the symbolic meaning of the number 12 to an Israelite, right? It is, <clears throat> it's like having uh, 13 st uh, bars or 50 stars on your flag. It's the number of the body politic. Suddenly, we realize that this study in contrasts means to have captured a body politic of a Jewish culture in which you have rich people and poor people, you have insiders and outsiders, you have men and women, you have pure and impure, you have rich and poor, you have those with words and those without words, and yet everyone is supposed to be part of the family. And in this amazing enacted political cartoon, Jesus heals the family, the household of the synagogue, right? Um, by including the outcast, both daughters are healed. This, as you see on this chart, this way of mapping, setting, and plot, and character uh, are all ways of paying attention to details in a narrative in order to see how the author is socially contrasting in order to make a larger point.
these uh, this is the kind of healing power of Jesus of Nazareth. These stories are about persons and their bodies and about body politics, uh, particularly the problems of exclusion or embrace. So we end these very rich and intense core samples, and we've really looked at less than half of the healing stories in Mark's gospel, um, by coming back to the issue. <clears throat> the issue of healing and human wholeness is about access. It's about visibility. It's about being seen or discounted. All of these forms of exclusion in the body politic function to dehumanize political bodies, that is, bodies in political space. What Jesus was about in his healing ministry was to engage actual bodies, but also expose actual body politics, to heal both the personal and the political. And this is why Jesus' healing was so often controversial and why genuine healing movements <clears throat> in society are also often controversial because they don't settle for private cure. They want to look at the causes of illness and dis-ease. Jesus as a liberative healer. A vocation we should remember that according to Mark is very explicitly passed on to his followers. The vocation of healing and exorcism and proclamation. All right, well, that's plenty for this morning. Um, we'll leave it at that. We're out of time. Um, we'll turn you back to Bachelard and the archetypes uh, and encourage you to be weaving together these approaches that Bill and I are, are offering uh, because Mark's text is a deep dive. You can go down as deep as you want in this material to discover both self and society. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>